When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the EDH RecCast. My name is Joey Schultz and I'm joined, as always, by my fantastic co-host. Up first, he just got done watching the Fast and the Furious Tokyo Mole Drifter. It's Matt Morgan. You know, I'm really excited for Innistrad Crimson Vow because I really think we're going to get to see the uh, the Flat Earth sect of the vampires on Innistrad, the uh, Nosferatu. So, oh, oh, wow. Okay. I was like, where are you going with that? But apparently where you're going is right off of the edge. Wow, Matt. Okay. Right off the edge. Well, and I think, I believe we should be getting a legendary creature, um, Vlad Earther. <laughs> no, you, okay. You need to be done. I think okay. I'm just going to move to my, uh, to my next I, they, intro they just, here. They claim there's no vampirical evidence of it being round, so... <laughs> Okay, so up next, he truly believes that the early bird gets the worm coil engine. It's Dana Roach. Um, who are the two most famous dropouts from Innistrad University? Uh, who, Dana? Uh, Tolvar, Dire Overlord, and Soren Markov. Uh, Tolvar couldn't pass basic crate training, and unlike Dracula, Soren couldn't count. Well, oh, okay. So, you know what? The, the level of dad joke that has been achieved today on this podcast is maybe we getting just, a little bit. We could just end this show right now and we're we, we could, to yeah. go. I mean, well, and don't forget um, about the count that was a flat earther, count flatula. <laughs> okay, so anyway, if you are still listening, which I don't know why you would be, but if you are still listening, this is the EDH Rec cast, and I am sorry. EDH Rec is the best deck building resource on the web for the commander format, compiling data from deck lists all over the internet to provide helpful recommendations for new commander decks. And here on the podcast, what we like to do is give all of that data a little more context. Dana, tell us what it is that we're talking about in this week's episode. We are talking about the riskiest commanders in EDH. Yes, I'm really, really excited about this one. Commanders that have a big payoff, but you do have to put a whole lot on the line to get that payoff because, I mean, no risk, no reward is a really cool thing to experience in Commander, and which are the best decks to experience that no risk, no reward? It should be a whole bunch of fun to dive into. Real quick, before we get started, let's pause and give a huge thank you to the folks at the Command Zone who handle the post-production work on our podcast, and of course, we need to thank our sponsors for the show. The EDH Recast is sponsored by Card Kingdom and TCG Player, two online retailers who are all treat, no trick. Uh, just put on your best costume and go to EDH Rec and click on the card in question. Choose the vendor link down below and go to the site. Doing that supports both EDH Rec and the show. And if you'd prefer to support the show directly, you can do so over at patreon.com slash EDH Recast. We have patron tiers of all sorts of levels, and we have patron-exclusive content that comes out every single month, all sorts of patron exclusives. So make sure you head over and you can support us just by going to patreon.com slash EDH Recast. And this week, we want to make sure we're thinking a very special patron just because they went to that website and are supporting us. Um, so we want to give a very special thank you this week to Ashley Morningstar. So Ashley, thank you so much for your support. We definitely appreciate it. 
That is such a cool name. Thank you, Ashley. And also, seriously, quick plug again for the Patreon. Y'all should really check it out. We do have some exclusive content that Matt mentioned. We recently had one that our Discord has been going crazy over called Build One, Brew One, and Bury One, just giving each other challenges to see which decks we would keep. And so, like, there's just really fun extra bonus episodes there, too. So I just want to throw that out there. And again, thank you, Ashley Morningstar. Awesome name. Appreciate your support so much. Okay, fellas, now let's get into our main topic. We are talking about the riskiest commanders in EDH, where the deck has a huge payoff but does require a bit of risk. And specifically here, I think we want to kind of acknowledge that it's not just a commander where if your plan goes awry, then you're back at square one. It is also kind of like if your plan goes awry, you've effectively helped yourself lose a little bit. Matt, is this a style that you are happy with or do you prefer not to play risky decks at all? I tend to stay away from these types of decks. I typically <laughs> okay. don't like putting too much on the line. Um, I'm pretty safe when it comes to a lot of things. Um, you won't find very many of my commanders on this list. You will find one, um, but as, as a style, I tend to avoid this strategy or these these types of commanders, I should say. Gotcha. Dana, how about you? I, I tend to as well. Um, not exclusively. I have a couple of decks where if, if things go badly, they go permanently badly for that game um, <laughs> okay. but for the most part I, I try to avoid that as well but I, I'm not entirely successful you guys are no fun see I love this style of play I love a risky commander because I feel like it can be so much fun and there's like a thrill to having just just like a, a teensy bit of risk out there and it's just like come on Dana why, why are we going to play it safe when we could like go down to one life and see if I'm able to kill the table as a result of it like it'd be so much more fun that way man I mean, I, I do have a deck that's built around uh, creature combat trick damage with one creature in the deck. So, I mean, like, that <laughs> is pretty risky if, if, you're, if your commander, if you're relying on the command zone entirely to do creature damage. Uh, you know, I've, I've been known to take those chances before myself, so I'm right, somewhat Fair worried. enough. Fair enough. Let's get right into our list and talk about some of these commanders that are just very, very risky to play. And I want to start us off with the commander that kind of inspired this episode. It's the new Lind Cheerful Tormentor, the Grixis Human Warlock 2-4 with Death Touch. And it says, whenever a curse is put into your graveyard from the battlefield, you return it to the battlefield attached to you at the beginning of the next end step. And at the beginning of your upkeep, you can attach a curse that is attached to you to one of your opponents. And if you do, you draw two cards. Finally, we have a Grixis Curse commander which is so awesome there are so many of those different curses out there like curse of shaken faith and curse of misfortune some really cool stuff out there but this is a commander that does kind of require you to enchant yourself and put yourself a little bit you know in the uh, in, in the target sites of your opponents in order to actually get cool payoffs um you know i do really like this design a lot the fact that the curse does have to hit you for at least a little bit of time before you can push it to somebody else i think is really fun um, and, and I get how this one is a particularly risky commander, but I, I do think this, as well as a lot of the ones we talk about, are pretty interesting designs. And I do think the fact that it is so risky um, does make them very fun to play against and in, in a lot of cases fun to play. I, I do get it. And, and this is a perfect example of that. Well, and the thing, too, is you have to survive long enough so that the downside of having that curse attached to you um, isn't too much of a drawback because sometimes... Mm -hmm. It can be kind of a pain in the butt to get rid of. So, yeah, you have to make sure that, you know, any downsides that you are attaching to yourself 
for that time like isn't going to set you back too far because sometimes they can be pretty hard to get rid of. They can be. I think some of the uh, players who are building Linda decks are even resorting to cards like Claws of Gix to allow them to sacrifice the curses that are attached to them if too many do get attached to them all at once because if you've thrown like five curses on an enemy player and then that player dies, the, all those curses are coming right back onto you and you can only siphon them away one at a time. So you do sometimes need emergency buttons, but it can be really, really interesting to actually make that dynamic emerge. I think this is such a fascinating commander, but it does kind of mean that you are putting yourself on this lab a little bit in order to make the deck work at all. Yeah, and there's also kind of the the problem of the chaos element that curses tend to add as well. Um, mm. it, this becomes very difficult in a lot of ways to control what's going to happen in this game. And if you're playing a really high-risk deck, you like to have a little bit of control over what's going on in the board. And you, with the Lin deck, you're just not going to have any control over anything, more or less. Yeah, and some of these curses are are pretty hard and, and, and pretty difficult, like just as far as like the downside, like curse of bloodletting that damages all the or doubles all the damage that you would receive. Um, you have to have go through an entire turn cycle. Like somebody can turn that into a combat trick. Say they disenchant it because you have it enchanting somebody else. Well, that just comes right back onto you. And that's that's kind of difficult, could be pretty painful, or like curse of thirst. Like if you have those curses <laughs> stacking up. Um, Curse of Thirst is going to come down and it's just going to deal a lot of damage as soon as you get that back. So um, there's some curses like you really have to be careful how you play them and make sure people aren't going to destroy them because suddenly like you can have zero curses on you and somebody plays, I mean, cycles a a dismantling wave maybe. (laughs) That's one of your favorites. Yeah, that's that's a lot of curses that you end up with that you didn't really expect to have. That, ooh, yeah, that's really, I, I, I totally love that, Matt. I, I, like, but yeah, be aware of Matt Morgan cycling dismantling waves in particular if you ever come across him while you're uh, helming a, a Linda deck. It's a pet card, I do admit, but it's also a powerful card. It's very, very powerful. Matt, what's another type of category of uh, risky commanders that um, is close to your heart, maybe? That's close to my heart? Well, I, I, I wish that Voltron decks didn't fall in this category, but they definitely do. Mm. Um, I have a Valduk Keeper of the Flame deck who that definitely plays out like a Voltron deck, putting lots of auras and equipments onto Valduk because that's how I get all my elementals. Um, but the problem is with Valduk and with most Voltron decks, um, if the commander is taken care of consistently, it's really hard to do very much of anything because everything kind of depends on having your commander or at least one important creature out in order for the deck to function. Uh, yeah, I, I have a couple of Voltron variant decks going and rebuilding is always the problem there to the point where like I have built those decks around making rebuilding or or not having to rebuild in the case of a Sagarda deck where she's tough to target. Mm-hmm. That's the, the number one priority with those kind of decks is how can I minimize how much I'm going to have to rebuild? Because if you have to do so, it, it, it's game over a lot of times. Yeah, I think Voltron is probably one of the when people hear risky commander styles like Voltron's probably the first thing that they think of because you are very literally all eggs in one basket. The commander that comes to my mind here is Bruna Light of Alabaster, who like cheats a bunch of auras into play so that she can just one shot your enemies. That's awesome. But if you can't 
get her to stay in play, the deck literally does nothing. You cannot get that car started. I feel like we probably can't talk about too many more Voltron commanders because we do want to evaluate not just the uh, commanders where, you know, it's difficult to get the car started, but also like if the plan goes bad, if you experience a setback, it's that your car has completely blown up. That's a little bit more what we want to focus on here too, but Voltron definitely has to be shattered out for sure. Well, speaking of commanders where the risk is much greater than just not being able to restart, uh, Selenia Dark Angel comes to mind. She's a, a black-white angel for five mana uh, with flying and has the ability to pay two life and return her to your hand. But nobody plays Selenia just to bounce her back to your hand once. They <laughs> play Selenia so they can stack that ability a whole bunch of times to knock their life total down to, you know, one or two or something. And then use something like Axis of Mortality or Repay in Kind or something to be able to swap life totals with somebody else and get their life and, and give them the one or two life. Um, if that falls apart, though, <laughs> then you're just that one or two life. <laughs> yeah. if, if Matt Morgan over there has a goblin bombardment in play, you'd better be very careful about reducing yourself to one life to try and make Selenia near-death experience work in the first place. And being able to sign in blood someone to death is one of the ultimate achievements in Commander, and Selenia puts you in sign-in-blood range for sure. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's such a risky thing just playing around with your life in general, um, putting yourself into a precarious situation. Like, it, there's a lot of stuff that can go wrong at instant speed. Like Joey said, like, goblin bombardments are very much a common thing in Commander. Uh, but even just, like, instant speed burn spells don't happen very often. But if you get a timely one, man, it's, it's, it's going to wreck the Selenia player's day because, yeah, you can respond to pretty much anything. Yeah, I have a deck that also plays around with life totals a lot, and that's Graven Predator Captain, which I love so much. He's the one who gets buffer and buffer for the more life that you've lost in a turn. So in that deck, I'm paying like 20 life a turn to a card like Wall of Blood or whatever so that I can just absolutely demolish my opponents. And when I put lifelink onto that commander, I'm going to get it all back. So it's like I'm not risking anything at all, except that I totally am. Because if they get rid of the lifelink source or if they fog the combat, then I'm not gaining any of that life back. And I just paid 30 life to do do nothing at all and i'm just completely just wrecked in that game so much because I, I i done did it to myself in that case i mean having your alpha strike get fogged feels bad in general <laughs> but it feels so much worse when you just paid 26 life to to do it yes hey i mean and i think kirik son of yogmoth definitely falls into this space as well like kirik you're able to pay to life instead of black mana symbols in spells um or abilities so it gets really tempting. Yeah, I'm going to spend four life to do this. I'm, I'm going to spend eight life to do this. Like, it adds up pretty quickly. Yagamoth has that lifelink, but man, if you start to depend on that lifelink to stick around, like, it's very, very easy to get carried away, you know, paying all that <laughs> life instead of the mana with a Kyrick deck. Oh, yeah, that's totally, totally. Like, there are certain abilities that you want to find for those decks, like the lifelink that I mentioned earlier for Graven or Kyrick. If you get, like, a card that has Extort on it, then you can begin to recoup those things. But if you don't find one of those cards you're going to be up the creek without a paddle and you'll just have like lowered your own life total and then maybe your commander gets removed and now you're sitting there at eight life when everyone else is still at 40 and there's not a whole lot that you can do about that anymore because even the benefit that your commander provides in the first place is now no longer accessible to you if you try to cast them again. Well, or, or, or even beyond the, the knocking yourself down to a low total and then not being able to get it back up again, you sometimes get those situations where someone will just drop a card um, that prevents you from gaining life at all. 
Uh, there's a handful of them out there. Uh, Erebos, God of Death, for example, your opponents can't gain life. If someone, you know, is playing an Erebos deck or just has Erebos in their deck and plays it, you just look at the board and go, oh, well, I guess I can't do anything basically right now. Um, so you can't even, you know, make the attempt in the first place sometimes if you know you can't gain that life back. Um, so yeah, you're you're susceptible in a couple of different ways with that style of deck. Well, uh, yeah, another commander that comes to mind in that regard is Ever Halcyon Witness, six mana four four legendary avatar in mono white. It's got lifelink and a really cool ability: pay four mana, exchange your life total with Ever Halcyon Witness's power. So you can swap it into a forty power creature, but it does have to hit someone and then get you all of that lifelink back up. Just like the Graven example that I mentioned earlier, like this actually needs to make the connection. And if there's one of those prevent life gain things going on in there, or if someone just has a well-timed instant speed removal spell, you, that window of opportunity is like where all of your marbles go. Like that is just everything comes down to that specific moment for this deck. And if it works out, it's going to work great. But if it does get destabilized in that moment, you just went down to four life and that is a very bad place to be. <laughs> yeah. Just, just hope somebody doesn't have a sudden spoiling in a hand when you go to make your move. Uh, <laughs> oh no, 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 no. That sounds like a nightmare. Yeah, I think how easy it is to respond to Evra and just the abilities that are going on there, uh, it probably leads to why Evra is not a very popular commander in general. Mm. Uh, another another commander that kind of falls into this, we're, we're going to go from a commander that maybe puts you in a position to lose versus a commander that actually just loses you the oh. game. Um, that's Phage the Untouchable. Oh, that's a great pick because you have to cast it from your hand or else Phage literally kills you. Phage literally will force you to lose the game. So you have to play a bunch of cards around Phage Untouchable, like Torpor Orb, which prevents all abilities from creatures entering the battlefield from happening. Um, so mm. if a commander you can't even cast unless you have certain amount of cards in play to prevent you from flat out losing the game, um, I think that in itself just qualifies you for being in this risky risky commander category. Yeah, like you've got Torpor Orb in play, you cast Phage from the command zone, someone destroys the Torpor Orb in response, you lose the game on the spot. Like that, that is a pretty darn risky. Or if you've got Phage in play and heaven forbid someone tries to use a Eldrazi displacer on it, which temporarily blinks it and then puts it right back into play, that will again just like do the thing. Oh, you got to be very careful about that one. Uh, whenever I see Phage in someone's graveyard, I'm just like, please let me top deck Living Death. That would be so hilarious right now. <laughs> oh, no. That sounds... Dana, that's delightfully cruel of you. And I actually... I have a deck that has Phage in it, and I almost I, I want you to do that to me now. <laughs> that that I want to lose a game that way. That sounds delightful. Are you kidding? Yeah, I mean that would be also along with the sign in blood kill a great achievement unlocked to uh, do to somebody for sure. That's so great. Um, here's another type of risk, and it involves literally the resources that you need to play the game in the first place. A commander that comes to mind here is Noyandar Royal Shaper. This is the Azorius commander Merfolk. He's a five mana four four, and whenever you cast an instant or sorcery spell, you put three plus one counters on one of your lands, and then it becomes a zero zero base power elemental creature with haste that is still a land. And so the more instants and sorceries that you cast, the bigger and bigger you can make your lands. The problem is, if you're making your lands into creatures, well, they are suddenly susceptible to things like board wipes, which as we know from playing commander, is the thing that a lot of players have in their decks. So that is a very tricky commander to try and make effective without putting yourself at too much of a liability. Well, similarly, Titania Protector of Argoth um, runs a risk of destroying your own land base as well. 
Uh, she has to kill off her own lands with things like Zern Orb to get that lethal army there. And I mean, yes, you can build it, you know, piece by piece with things like fetch lands or what have you. But if you really want to go wide to take somebody out, having a way to sacrifice multiple lands versus, you know, one fetch per turn or something makes that way easier. And if you don't have a way to bring them all back or someone fogs through that or wipes the board or something, it's just impossible to come back. It's impossible to do anything, maybe, let alone come back. I love I love Titania so much. This Titania is like one of my genuinely favorite decks. And I'd love the risky play there because, yeah, like if I've got that Splendid Reclamation, I feel great. But if not, do I go for it? Is Dana going to wipe the board? Matt, I feel like Titania is like such an interesting uh, indicator of like where you and I are at as players because I like getting the uh, the elemental tokens that have five power by sacrificing my lands, whereas you play Omnath and you like getting your five power elemental tokens by playing lands. And it's a very interesting difference between us. Yeah, getting rid of the lands to get your, your elementals, that's all well and good, but I'd rather accumulate more resources than give resources to get them back. Um, it's <laughs> fine. I mean, whatever floats your boat, I'm not going to tell you you're wrong, but I think you're wrong, maybe? Oh, no, no. It's just, it's a little bit more risky, and sometimes it can be faster, and sometimes it does not work out. I have had plenty of moments where I have no lands in play, and then someone gets rid of all of the creatures, and then I have no objects in play. Period. And you know what? I deserve it at that point. But. And then the Joey stands alone <laughs> is what it does. Very, very that. You know what? Actually, okay, speaking of lands that are animated or sacrificed, can we talk about Eryxmethes for a second here? Eryxmethes is that Simic commander that comes in as a land, and if you cast enough spells, it will eventually wake up, remove all of those slumber counters, and become a big 12-12 this, I think, is like one of the riskiest commanders to play because it dies to Ghost Quarter. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, similarly, you have Ashaya Soul of the Wild, um, the mono green commander, um, where her power and toughness are equal to the number of lands you control, but non-token creatures you control are forest lands in addition to their other type. Not only does Ashaya die to a Ghost Quarter, every creature you <laughs> control when you have a shy and play dies to a ghost quarter. I mean, at that point though, like you're only opening up maybe to like a kill spell or two. Cause I don't know how many people are playing multiple like ghost quarter strip mine type of effects in their decks, but yes, like it does add a little bit extra vulnerability. Um, it is kind of weird. Yeah. That you play this big massive 12, 12 and then it dies right away to a tectonic edge. That's pretty funny. Uh, one of the most high risk cards here. I think we should touch on is Drownu Lich Lord. Uh, from way back in the Time Spiral block. Um, Drownu is a zombie wizard for five mana, um, and you can tap Drownu to have target instant or sorcery card in your graveyard gain flashback until end of turn, where the flashback costs equal to its mana cost. That's super, super useful. Mm -hmm. um, the problem is <laughs> the the passive text on the card says if damage would be dealt to Drownu Lich Lord, sacrifice that many permanents instead. <laughs> and... That's really, really risky unless you have a way to guarantee that won't happen. And in, in Black Blue, that's sometimes tricky to do. Uh, I have a little bit of experience with this. Uh, when I first started playing Commander, I had a friend who had a Drownu Lich Lord zombie tribal deck because at the time it was one of really the only options. This was, I think, even prior to the first Innistrad set. So this was before Grimgrin even had really been released. So Drownu was his zombie option, really. And he even said at one point, I just don't ever play Drownu. It's just on theme and it's my zombie commander. 
And then at one point, he got in a tight spot and had to play Drownu. And somebody immediately like hit it with a lightning bolt, and somebody else hit it with something else, and he he lost his entire board state in like a turn and a half. I've, yeah, a single blasphemous act, and Drown was just like goodbye lands, goodbye things, goodbye board. Like this is a fascinating commander. I I'm always intrigued to see if I could make this one work, but I am a little bit afraid of someone playing what is like the most popular red board wipe blasphemous act and just completely ruining my day yeah i i have zero interest like that downside is enormous um you can't even use them as an emergency blocker because that's just going to hurt you even more like it's (laughs) i i have zero temptation ever to build blue black and like way more or way less i should say to build drowning like just that downside is enormous Wait, wait, Matt, what about a deck where you, you, you devise a strategy where you play Drownu and you give him to other players and then you wait for those Blasphemous Act types of things to happen? What about that? I, but that, I still have to make other people cast Blasphemous Act. That's true. That's true. Like, why don't I just play something that I don't have to give away? And like, and <laughs> to <true>. me, like <laughs> giving a spell flashback that you still have to like pay mana for, like, I don't even think the upside is really even there. Like, I remember when I first got back into playing Magic too. like Drownu was fairly popular relatively. And I just never understood it because it was so much fun just to like blow up Drownu or at least try to because then they just never had anything around. Now, I, I will say this though, like think about how much fun it would be to have someone play Drownu and then look down and see you're holding a lure in your hand. <laughs> for, for, force, force them to block and all of that. Oh, yeah. That's, them's them's oh, the man. goods, man. Them's that's the goods. That's pretty darn. That's pretty great. Um, sort of sticking within these colors, I think it's also kind of fair to say that Obeka Brute Chronologist is a pretty risky commander. That is the Grixis Ogre Wizard who lets the active player stop the turn. She's got that tap ability to just straight up the person whose turn it is can end the turn. And that one is pretty interesting. And like not all of the cards on her page have direct drawbacks. Like you use that ability to get around the sacrifice uh, delayed trigger on like a sneak attack, for instance, which is really, really cool. But a lot of Obeka players also really hardcore lean into those cards like Final Fortune, which give you an extra turn, but then there's a triggered ability at the end of that turn where you would lose the game. So you have to have a Becca in play to make those extra turn spells be completely worth it. Otherwise, you're just going to lose the game straight up. So there's this window here of opportunity for your opponents to actually get rid of your Obeka so that you will just, in fact, lose the game instead of being able to like actually end that turn and prevent that game loss trigger. So this, I feel like, also kind of qualifies as a pretty risky commander if you're not careful enough. Um, yeah, that, that's the, the problem with Obeka absolutely is actually using spells that make you lose the game. Like that's, you know, <laughs> yeah. they'll do all the work for you as your opponent sometimes when they drop that Obeka card and cast that final fortune and you're holding a removal spell in hand or something like, oh, thank you very much for killing yourself. I appreciate it. <laughs> yeah. Good luck. Well, I mean, similarly, I think you get a problem sometimes with mill decks, things like Phoenix or Bruvac. Um, where you're trying to mill somebody out and have them lose the game by having no cards in their library. The problem with any kind of a mill strategy really is when you flip over your commander and see that you're looking at a Muldrotha and a Carador and a Marin surrounding at the table, 
and realize, oh, you've just somehow become everyone's partner simultaneously. Oh, no, Dana, that sounds great. I don't know why you would say that this is a risk at all. <laughs> like, no. Just... I mean, it sounds great if you're the Marin player or the Madrotha player or the Caridor player, but uh, that sounds great to me. probably way less fun if you're playing Phoenix. Oh, what? No, that's that's great. I, I encourage everyone that I play games with to always play Phoenix against me. That sounds like a great time. <laughs> I mean, that's like playing an entire, well, we'll talk about this soon enough, but yeah, that's like playing group hug against like combo players. Like, you're just asking for your own demise yeah it's that's a very tough line to walk make sure that you are packing grave hate in mill decks because otherwise you're just giving me fuel all right matt you hinted at some other things soon to come but let's pause from all of this risk taking real quick and go to our favorite segment challenging the stats because there's so much data on Trek, but we don't always agree with it sometimes i think that cards see too much play or too little play so we love to challenge those statistics matt do you want to start us off this week i sure can start challenge stats but first how about i tell you about things that are sponsors as in alter sleep Sleeves.com, which is the official sponsor of Challenge Stats. Um, you can head over to altersleeves.com slash edhretcast, and that will let you check out all the awesome designs they have over there. So say you want to check out some, you know, maybe some alternate art, some extended borders, anything like that, but you don't actually want people drawing on your cards. Maybe you've got some fancy cards that you don't want people scribbling on. Alter Sleeves is just a great way to get around that. You can change the art out. You can play around different borders. It's a lot of fun. And if you go to altersleeves.com slash EDHRETCAST, that will help support the show as well. So it's a win-win situation. You get some awesome new fancy art. You can even get our handsome faces on your Alter Sleeves if you really want. Um, so head over to altersleeves.com slash EDHRETCAST to support the show. Awesome stuff. And what is your challenge? Well, my challenge this week is a card that I think hasn't quite caught on yet. There was a lot that came out um, right around Strixhaven with the commander precons and all that kind of fun stuff. Um, so a card that I think kind of got oh just overshadowed by everything else going on is Reinterpret. So Reinterpret is two and is it colors, so a blue and a red for an instant says counter target spell. You may cast a spell with an equal or lesser mana value from your hand without paying its mana cost. Um, I think this card is is pretty solid, like four mana for a counter spell is a little hard to justify sometimes, but the fact that you're getting two spells at once, I think is especially valuable in commanders like Ramos Dragon Engine. Um, Ramos loves it whenever you cast a spell, um, you get to put a plus one plus one counter on Ramos for each uh, of that spell's colors. So reinterpret automatically gets you two plus one plus one counters, plus you get to cast another spell for free. And the bigger, the better when it comes to countering other spells. Um, Ramos has both size and just different colors, whether you're casting charms like uh, Abzan Charm, Sultai Charm, that are going to be multicolored cards. You're going to get a ton of plus one plus one counters on Ramos, but also you're just going to get a bunch of value. You're going to get like cryptic command type of legendary value from casting reinterpret, <laughs> then casting something else from your hand for free. Like it's bound to happen um and the nice thing about a ramos deck is with all the different charms that the typical deck is playing there's always going to be some mode in your hand that you're going to want to get extra value from whether you're killing a creature or whether you're drawing more cards anything like that i just think reinterpret is a home run in general um Currently, though, it's not showing up on really any commander's page in general, not on Ramos's at all, because it's only played in about 2,200 decks. Um, I think Reinterpret is one of those cards that there was just the sheer volume of stuff coming out. Nobody really got a chance to let that one simmer, and I think people should revisit it for sure. Maybe reinterpret how many decks ah. they're playing it in. Ah, there dad it jokes all around. 
There, there it is. Uh, that, Matt, I really, really like that challenge. That's one of my favorites from you for like, I, 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 I've been looking for a place. I'm like, where could I actually play this? Because Reinterpret feels like it wants to be in a Spellslinger deck, but it doesn't quite get there. But Ramos, where it is a multicolored counterspell that lets you play more multicolored spells, that feels perfect. I love this challenge. I, I like it in, in Ramos. I think even like Animar. I know Animar decks are typically very tuned, but like anything likes casting free spells, man. I, I just think this is good. <laughs> All right. I'm going to move to my challenge now. My challenge is our listener submitted challenge. This one comes from Peter Neathway, who wanted to challenge the card Soul's Fire showing up in Zada Hedron Grinder decks. Zada Hedron Grinder is that really fascinating mono red goblin where if you cast your spells and the only target on that spell is Zada, then you can spread that spell out to copy to all of the creatures that you control, which is really, really awesome. You've got a whole bunch of those little spells that can be just spread out. Sometimes if they're cantrips, you'll draw just a butt ton of cards. You can power them all up with these small spells. It's very, very cool. But there is a non-bow that is appearing at a pretty decent clip on Zada's page that Peter wanted to shout out here, and that's the card Soul's Fire. Soul's Fire is a three-mana instant that says target creature you control deals damage equal to its power to any target. The reason that this doesn't actually work with Zada is because Zada needs the spell that you cast to only have one target. And since Soul's Fire targets both your creature and then an opponent or an opponent's creature, that is two targets, and Zada won't cause the multiplying effect to happen at all. It shows up in 26% of Zada decks, and that is far too much because it's just a non-bow. That doesn't actually work the way that a Zada deck wants it to work, and there are more efficient cards that you could be playing instead. So, Peter, great challenge. That is the one that we've got for this week, and now let's round it out with Dana. Uh, my challenge sets is for a card from back in the Kamigawa block, an artifact called Wine of Blood and Iron. <laughs> Is this nonsense? We, we, it is a it is <laughs> no, it's, it's a three mana artifact. Um, it's only in seventy six decks in each rack, and it says for four mana, target creature gets plus X plus O till end of turn, where X is its power, and then you sacrifice Wine of Blood and Iron at the end of turn. So it's not a berserk effect necessarily because the creature doesn't die. Wine of Blood and Iron gets destroyed. Um, the thing that I actually missed in this card for a lot of years is it isn't a one-use ability. You can pump as much mana as you want into this in a single turn. So you can double and then double and double again if you are so inclined. Um, I think there's a lot of places this is useful. I have been running it to really good effect in my Jury Master of the Review uh, treasure deck. Jury who deals damage equal to his power when he dies. So there's been plenty of situations where Jury's sitting at like six, uh, six health or something, six power. And someone goes to remove jury, and I, you know, I sacrifice five or six treasures and uh, buff them up to an eleven or something, and then dump all my mana into wine of blood and iron to activate it twice, and the person just gets killed by killing my commander. <laughs> um, the other place I think, though, it would really do a lot of work is in the companion Zerda, the Dawn Waker. Um, Zerda gets played as a commander in quite a few decks, and. Zerda's prime ability is it says abilities you activate that aren't mana abilities cost two less to activate. Um, that means that the Wine of Blood and Iron activation costs two mana instead of four, meaning you can activate it that many more times. So, you know, even if you're just using it on Zerda, two mana makes Zerda, who's a 3 3, into a 6 power, and four mana makes it into a 12, six mana makes it into a 24 power, so you can just kill somebody for six mana activation, let alone any other stronger creature that may have evasion that you might have. Um, it's a really solid card in quite a few decks, and it definitely should see more play in Zerda for sure. 
I, I I just absolutely adore Dana that you've hit all of the classics this episode. You had a back in my day story about Drownu, and now you've got a underrated card that has that shows up in what it was like seventy decks, seventy six decks. I this you you you're hitting all of the notes perfectly for the the classics that we we love you for. So I just. Well done, man. Well, then that's a really spicy interaction. Like, holy crap. I, I was like, where are you going with this? But actually, that's really cool. That sounds like a really savage interplay. I, I mean, like I said, for a lot of years, I saw this card. And I'm like, oh, one activation. That's kind of terrible until I realized that not a tap ability. You can do it repeatedly. It's it's a solid card. That is crazy. All right. Let's get back into our show here. You know what, Matt? You had mentioned group hug earlier before we got into challenge stats. Do we want to talk about that now? What is it that would possibly make a deck strategy like group hug so risky at a game of EDH? What 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 could you be talking about there? Well, if you've ever tuned into twitch.tv slash EDH Recast on Wednesday evenings <laughs> to watch Watch us stream Commander games with great guests. Um, you'll have noticed that every now and then, Joseph M. Schultz will play his Kaneos and Tiro deck. That just happens to every turn. Let everyone at the end of his turn draw cards or play lands or just accumulate more and more resources. Now that's, that's all. It's all well and good, but you know, um, giving a bunch of people extra resources that might be like a card that you play and an extra land you play. But that's three cards that other players are drawing. Um, if you're playing Howling Mine or any of that, like those resources you give away over the course of a game, that adds up really quickly with more players in there. And it's just, it's a really hard strategy to balance, especially when you consider how many combos are in the format these days, how many value engines, and just giving people more and more resources with every new set, it seems, becomes an even more dangerous game. Oh, I, I do love it, though. Like, there's something so fun about that strategy of, like, you're being benevolent, but you're also overloading people on resources in ways that they can't control, but you as the group hug player might be able to have a, a bird's eye view of the game and still harness to your advantage, which I think is so much fun. But, Matt, you are not wrong that occasionally it has caused me to accelerate the combo player so that they just found the thing that they needed and they just completely went off, and I could not control that at all in that group hug deck. So... I love that strategy. It's very, very fun. I love making friends at the table, but sometimes it does come around and bite me in the butt. It's also a strategy where to a degree, particularly in the more huggy of the group hug decks, you're relying a lot of times on people's personal reaction to what you're doing to keep you alive. You're like hoping <laughs> that they will not attack you because you're giving them stuff. And that's always a really challenging thing to do too, where you build your deck around hoping people react a certain way. Um, yeah, there's a lot of <laughs> chaos and a lot of unpredictability there. And that's a that's a very, very risky thing to to just plan your entire game around. Wait, Dana, are you saying that you still plan to attack me even though I would let you draw a card? I, it's a not going to stop me from attacking you now. <laughs> I, I I can't I can't possibly fathom. Yeah, no, that's exactly it. You really do have to find out which specific things are valuable to specific players, and that also requires a bird's eye view image of the game. Because like, if I give Matt tokens, maybe that will be enough to satisfy him. But if I give Dana tokens, he might be like, "What is this trash? I'm still going to attack you, Joseph." Like, you really have to find the the balance there, and that depends a lot upon the psychology of it too. So, totally feel it, Matt. That's a great great shout. Speaking of giving people things, though. What do we think about Blim Comedic Genius? That's the Rakdos Imp from Commander Legends that uh, gives stuff to your opponents. Whenever it deals combat damage to a player, that player gains control of a permanent that you control. And then each player loses life and discards cards equal to the number of permanents they control but don't own. So he gives stuff to your opponents 
and then punishes them for it, which is pretty darn fun. And there are really fun things that you can give away. Dana, would you say that this is also a pretty risky commander? Uh, yes, very very much so. Again, the, the element of uncontrollability, I think, is, is real high with these kind of commanders. Yeah, Blim, comedic genius, Zedru, the great-hearted, um, kind of oh, a yeah. legendary giving things away. Um, type of commander like yes it's it's all well and good to like, give you know uh, illusions of grandeur to another player and then they can't pay the upkeep <laughs> and so they lose 20 life but also like there's just so many variables in these types of strategies between giving things away group hug like typically in a game of commander you want to minimize the variables and and these types of decks they're increasing them because you're giving so many things away to other players and you like you said Joey you never know how somebody's going to react to you giving them a gift because sometimes they might be able to use it to their benefit and that's exactly what you don't want to be able to do well and not only that but like especially Blim he's going to play those cards like the aggressive mining which says you can't play lands or demonic pact which like gives you a couple of turns but at the end of the couple of turns demonic pact just straight up says you lose the game like if you cast one of those and then you move to combat with Blim and you try to attack a player to hit them and then give them one of your really bad cards on your side, but then they remove Blim before he can make that combat happen. Now you're just stuck with a really bad card on your side of the field. And that card could cause you to lose instead of your opponents. Well, kind of the, the non-commander version of this that I always think of is an enchantment called Rite of the Raging Storm, where... Everyone creates a hasty elemental that has to attack but can't attack you. And I really liked that card when it was first released and, and, and played it in a couple different decks. And then I ran into a situation where I put it on the board and passed a turn and realized the person that was to my left had a skull clamp <laughs> and the person to their left had, had an Ajnath altar. So basically, I played in, an enchantment that did nothing but allow my opponents to draw cards and make free mana. Oh, man. Oh, or uh, here's a commander version of that, Dana. Varchild, Betrayer of Keldor. <laughs> right. Yeah. When that one hits opponents, it gives them survivor tokens. Yep. And you can get those survivor tokens back, but not if they have one of those altars that they're just going to sacrifice it to. You've just given them mana. Yeah, there's a lot of risk in those kind of things for sure. Um, in, in kind of similarly to to giving people things, any of the really dedicated theft commanders kind of face a similar problem as well if you're building your deck around stealing people's creatures. Um, any strategy can be at risk of being shut down by like one or two cards. But the problem that I've seen a lot of times with, with theft-based decks is Homeward Path, unlike a lot of grave hate or something, <laughs> doesn't go away very easily. You're not sacrificing a thing to blank someone's graveyard like you are with like Soul Guide Lantern, for example. And unlike an artifact that's easy to remove, lands are much trickier to remove unless somebody has, you know, the right target removal spell or a strip mine or something. So it, it's very easy to have that theft-based deck just get permanently turned off by someone who has that homeward path that maybe you didn't even notice they played three turns earlier because it's a land card. You just weren't paying attention. Yeah. Um, so so that's a, a somewhat risky strategy too where just one land can shut your entire plan off. Well, and the downside too of, of those theft-based decks is your deck is completely dependent on the quality of the creatures other people are playing. Like, And if they know you're playing <laughs> a deck that is like, okay, well, you play something, I'm going to steal it as soon as you do. They might play, like, they can sandbag their good stuff until they know you're out of your mind control effects. Okay, cool, you got my Llanowar Elf. Here's an Avenger Zendikar. Congrats. It's also a good way to have have the table focus on just killing you because they don't want to have you take all their stuff. Yeah, like it's, it's very easy to play around. Like as, as silly as it might be, like 
you can probably get baited fairly easily if you get too greedy or, or too anxious to cast your spells. So yeah, definitely risky because it's it's completely based on what other people are giving you. I Sorry, Matt, what I thought that you were saying there when you brought that up, I thought you were talking about like Xanathar or Gonti, which like take cards off the top of your opponent's decks. And you were saying that the risk involved in those commanders is that what if you're playing against opponents who their cards just suck? Like that's what I thought you were saying in that moment. I mean, it, just like you could just completely whiff because your opponents have bad cards. You could get some sucky cards. You never know. Oh, oh man. Um, maybe people baited you. you think, yep, you got, you got got. Maybe you got got. You know what, speaking of top decks though, Matt, you have a Vevictus Asmati the Dire deck and I feel like that's a pretty risky commander too. It can be. I haven't gotten burnt by it too bad yet but the keyword in that sentence is yet. Um, it's bound to happen um, just knowing myself and the the gods of magic. Um, I pray to Perforos every time a card flips. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it's... It is nice because Vivictus has targeted removal. It gets around indestructibility on a lot of problem permanents, but also like sometimes what you're getting rid of might not be as scary as the thing you could be giving them in return. So um, there's definitely a little bit of risk and reward. It, for me, it's acceptable though, because if, I, if there's nothing worth getting rid of, I'm definitely not going to tell people to sacrifice a one-one token mm-hmm. in order to, you know, possibly give them something massive back. Um, in, in that case, it, it's nice that it's, you know, you're able to control a little bit. But also, yeah, it, letting people cheat other things into play, it's maybe not the the best move in some decks. Yeah, can can be a little bit tough if you attack and you use Vevictus to get rid of their Avenger of Zendikar, and then they are the ones who flip into the Perforos instead. Yeah. Like, that is, it's a cool ability, and usually it's worked out for you, but like you said... The keyword is it, the, the the commander is a time bomb for sure. So speaking of giving away things in a way that's not controllable, um, Braid's Conjurer Adept comes to mind as a commander that does a lot of that. Um, at the beginning of each player's mm. upkeep, that player may put a artifact, creature, or land card from their hand onto the battlefield. Uh, so Braid's lets people play free stuff. Um, generally speaking, uh, Braid's decks are built around having a bunch of big stuff they're going to play for free. But unless you have some way to flash braids in, you are the last person to take advantage of it. So everyone else at the table gets to do the free thing before you do. And that can be very, very risky depending on who you're playing with. <laughs> oh, man. This is a, a, such a cool commander, especially if, like, if you cheat a Sphinx of the Second Sun into play, you'll get to use Braid's ability more than everyone. And you can leverage that ability so that you get the most benefit and your deck is built to take advantage of it. But also, sometimes there are people like Matt Morgan in the world whose their, their curve also starts at six. And so they're going to just drop a whole bunch of stuff into play too for free. Yeah, you, you want to make fun of my Vevictus deck about being risky, <laughs> but like it's even riskier playing Braids against that deck because, yeah, the, the, yeah, I don't think I've cast a spell before like five in some games. Yeah, yeah. It always feels pretty good to remove someone's commander, but it feels really, really good to do it three seconds after you put something into play for free off that commander. Oh, yeah. Oh, uh, yes. Thank you for giving me the answer to your commander. <laughs> right, yeah. Right. Yeah, that's 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 a tough one. I feel like maybe Marilyn of the Morn Song also potentially falls into this because that one forces people not to draw but to tutor instead. Well, the thing they're going to tutor for is probably a card that will get rid of your Marilyn the Morn Song so that you won't be able to like make your own commander work in the first place. So that's also probably somewhere in there where your opponents literally get a benefit right before you do. And you know what? That's also true of another commander here that I think we do need to shout out. Matt, this is, again, in colors that I know are, are, are very much an affinity for you. Jared Carthalian, True Air, the Naya commander, who, if you're the monarch, he can just take damage and turn it into plus one counters instead. 
But when he comes into play, he forces an opponent to become the monarch and you can't get it back that turn. You have to get it back in a completely different way. So he like makes someone else the monarch. It's cool to get it into the game, but you are giving an opponent the first benefit off of that effect. And that also can be a little sketchy. Yeah, I, I love the Monarch and what it brings to Commander games, like a few cards in every single deck just to, to introduce it. Definitely a fun wild card. Uh, but I like it when I'm the one who gets to draw the card first. I'm not too keen on letting other people do that. Um, it's definitely kind of falls into the group hug thing where you don't want to give your mm. opponents resources, but also you have to earn it back. And that's, that's kind of a hard ask. Although it does, this is an example, I think, of one of those commanders, I think, very similar to um, Lind, who we talked about early on. I do like the design a lot. I do like the this is very much a risk-reward thing, and I think mm -hmm. it does add a fun mini-game to this commander that I do think is really neat to see. I've played against this deck a couple times, and there's always a lot going on, and that always makes for a fun game to play, for sure. Yeah, let, like, let's not lose sight of the point of this episode. Like, these are risky commanders, but the risk is also part of the fun that makes the payoff so rewarding as well. Like, that's a cool ability. If he, That's a commander where, unlike Dralnu, you do want to play the Blasphemous Act with Gerard Carthalian in play because he's going to turn all that damage that would be dealt to him into a bunch of plus encounters. That sounds awesome. But there's a hurdle, for sure, that he imposes upon himself that does, like... Cause the, the table to be a little bit shaky. You're not really sure if you can find your footing, but like it is really fun is the, the whole point of it. it. It makes that risk worth it. Well, speaking of a, a, a commander that you, you give bonuses out and you have to depend on like stealing that back, um, your lock of Scorch Thrash is a very interesting one as well. Uh, giving Instead of giving your opponents cards or, or the monarch, uh, you're giving them mana, but you're also counting on them to not spend that mana with your lock around because your lock's bringing back a throwback mechanic with mana burn or, you know, a player losing unspent mana causes that player to lose that much life. So you can pay one and tap your lock to give every player jund colored mana. So a, a black, a red and a green. But that also gives people an opportunity to cast these big, wild and crazy spells, um, which sometimes isn't super reliable um, as much as fun as much fun as it might be, you know, mana burning the table out. Yeah, there's a lot of hoops you have to jump through to make sure this doesn't uh, burn you. No pun intended. Oh, that oh no, pun the, was the pun intended. was intended. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, Belby Corrupted Observer feels very similar. Um, at the beginning of each player's post-combat main phase, that player adds two mana for each opponent who lost life this turn. Um, you know, it's it's relatively easy for you to maybe get more mana than other people with a Belby deck, but they're still going to get mana, per, you know, pretty frequently. Mm -hmm. And that's every opponent that's going to get get something versus you yourself getting something. Um, there's all there, there's a lot of chances for things to go wildly, wildly wrong in a Belby deck. I, those are both like playing you're playing with fire by playing with mana and, and especially like your lock in particular wants to use those heartbreak heartbeat of spring type of cards that double everyone mana's output so like everyone's getting even more mana and more and more mana well what if you're giving them exactly what they need for like an instant speed blue sun zenith to just draw a bazillion cards what if they have a commander that has an activated ability so then you're giving them mana but they're never going to experience the mana burn because they can just spend that mana just at will with a mana just a, a mana outlet right there in play there's a lot that you have to guide there that's very very tricky even when you tap him to give everyone three mana that might be the three mana that they needed to cast their beast within on your yurlock uh, it's all that mana you can dump into your um, your wine of blood and iron. Oh, goodness. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. I think we need to move on, Mr. Throwback. He, you know, he heard mana burn and he was just like, back in my day, he got right, to bring exactly. those classic elements back in. That's exactly what happened there. Uh, Dana, how, how do you feel about 
wheels as a (laughs) category of deck. Do you think that that might be a risky deck too? I have, I think wheels are one of the riskiest, uh, most poorly played cards in commander for sure. (laughs) I have seen so many wheels win somebody else a game by the person, uh, person casting them at a very inopportune moment. Um, in addition, you have the added factor of smothering tithe being a thing. <laughs> Either making your wheel uncastable or worse, casting it anyway and giving somebody a gazillion treasure tokens. It's um, there, There's a lot that can go wrong with wheels also. Wait, are, are you saying that's a bad thing to use a reforge the soul to make everyone else draw a collective 21 cards and the player with the smothering tie that gets 21 mana from that? Are you saying that could possibly backfire? Yeah, there, there's some potential for it. I'm not saying it's going to. <laughs> I'm just saying there's some potential for a backfire there. And again, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying wheels can't be amazing. I, I've seen some fantastic wheels too that turn the game around for the person who cast them. I've just seen them go horribly awry as often, if not more often. Speaking of strategies that can go horribly awry, um, coin flip decks in general, um, we talk about reducing variance and all that stuff. Like, there's literally no way to reduce variance on a 50 50 <laughs> coin flip because it's always going to be 50 50. Um, so, you have decks like Okan and Zinder Split or, or Usury Fortune's Flame that are commanders that are all about those coin flips and, and getting whatever bonuses you might be getting from those. Um, but it's, it's, legit going to be 50% chance of it working or backfiring. And that's something that, man, it's, it's kind of hard. It's a fun, it's, it's wildly fun to watch, but also like it can be wildly frustrating if you're playing those decks as well. Yeah. I mean, there are cards like Krark's Thumb, which can give you additional chances at the coin flip, but that can't save you in all of the times. I have seen Ocount and Zindersplit players fail every single coin flip in a game before. That is a thing I've witnessed happen. We've also, however... I mean, un- unless you're Gavin Verhey on uh, yes. the Twitch stream and you just happen to get like seven coin flips in a row that you win, like that was just wild. But yeah, that, everybody else. That's what I was going to say too. Yes, everybody absolutely. else just falls through. <laughs> yeah, no, these are, these are commanders that have that chaos element are absolutely going to put you a little bit of risk. You can mitigate some of it, but sometimes the odds are not ever in your favor. And, and there are even other commanders, too. I think like Zerzoth, for example, which does have a random discard element. And that could also potentially work for your opponents and not work out for you. So inherently, when we're talking about risky commanders, the ones that have built in chance involved, they're going to take the cake. So having looked at all these high risk commanders here, um, are there any final thoughts kind of collecting all this information together that you guys have about these really high risk, sometimes high reward options that you can play in the format? Yeah. Matt, has this convinced you to build a high risk commander? Definitely Maybe. not. Definitely. <laughs> not. Just reminded me of all the reasons that I don't like building some of these types of commanders. Um, <laughs> like, like we said, like Vevictus Asmati is, or Vevictus of the Dire, I should say, um, still like it's a little bit controlled. You're, you're still getting something out of it no matter what. But yeah, it's it's minute compared to some of these other commanders like Drownu Lichlord that just, man, that <laughs> downside is so hard to get over with relatively little upside. Well, and I think, Matt, you had mentioned earlier as well when we were talking about Ever Halcyon Witness that mm-hmm. there is a thing going on at play where the commanders that are very high risk 
also that can really severely impact their popularity. And I, I think it's pretty easy to see when we look over the most popular commanders in the entire format, they don't have a lot of this risk built in at all. They cover their weaknesses so splendidly that even if things don't go to plan, they're still just getting regular, good, consistent value. So it does feel like risk does have a, a pretty big impact on popularity and appeal for players because, you know, if, if you've got you know, just a, a limited amount of time to play Commander, for example, playing a deck that may just blow up in your face might be a little bit less appealing than, you know, being able to play a Commander that you know is going to serve you well. But I do personally still get really attached to Commanders that have uh, just a wee bit of risk in there. It still sounds fun to me to try that out and see if I can make the explosion happen, not in my own face, but in other people's, you know? Yeah, I, I think, at least for me, um, the risk has to come with generating a reaction from the table that makes everyone have had fun with it. Um, mm. I, I think the Greven deck is a good example of that, Joey. Um, you're going to occasionally kill people, but you're going to occasionally wind up spending 20 life and get fogged. But when you <laughs> yeah. do that, everyone's going to laugh. It's pretty fun. And that's kind of, that, that's worth it. Like, right. Like if when the deck blows up in your face, everyone finds it hilarious. That that's pretty worth it. Whereas I think there's some of these commanders where it blows up in your face it's, it, it doesn't maybe create that kind of reaction. And I think for myself, if I'm going to do it, it has to be one that winds up being funny when it goes badly. Right. There is a substantial difference between a commander where the risk is something that makes the game fun and engaging and can they pull it off versus a type of risk where... Like, if the thing doesn't get pulled off, it just kind of king makes someone else in a way that the rest of the table kind of couldn't be responsible for and couldn't adjust for. There, there are some of these where, like, if the plan goes wrong and there was, like, a random element that caused other things to happen, like, it was completely out of everyone else's control. The group hug player, classically, letting someone else combo off more quickly. Not a thing that is easy to control. And that is a very different type of reaction. So, Dana, I think that's a great distinction. Yeah, Joey, you mentioned, you know, not everybody else is able to, like, really interact and feels like the responsibility falls on someone's shoulders. If you're the group hug player, the responsibility falls on your shoulders for enabling that combo player to then combo off. So, yeah, you're, you're kind of the bad guy for enabling the bigger <laughs> bad guy. Right. Or, Matt, if your Vevictus deck causes Dana to put some 13-mana monstrosity into play. I mean, it could also be you're the one who's responsible. Who but even we, knows? we know Dana doesn't play 13-mana monstrosities, though. <laughs> That's true. If he can't say back in my day about it, then Dana won't put it into his deck at all, right? Yeah, like the, the, the biggest monstrosity is Draco, but he's never casting that anyway. So. <laughs> my, my absolute favorite reaction I've ever had, I think, from somebody in a game of commanders was when, the, was when they cast bribery on me and grabbed my deck and started flipping through. And I'm like, what is all of this garbage? <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Like, once again, that's a fun risk too. Yeah. Is if just completely yeah. whiffing when your opponents play just bad cards in their decks that you can't steal. And sometimes those opponents playing bad cards, sometimes they're us. Sometimes yes. it's us three right here on the podcast. Oh man, this was such a fun episode. Thank you guys so much for joining me with it. But let's call things to a close. So if our listeners would like to get in touch with us where is it that they can find us all so you can find me on the twitters at mathemus55 that's m-a-t-h-i-m-u-s-5-5 and don't forget wednesday evenings we are streaming games over at twitch.tv slash edh retcast uh, we have guests on every single week so make sure you tune in because it's always a super super fun time and you can find me on twitter at dana roach i am writing articles for both edh rec and commanders herald and i am also uh, showing up weekly on commander central my other podcast and you can find all of us together at patreon.com slash
And I'm Joey Schultz. You can find me at Joseph M. Schultz on Twitter, and you can find the cast at EDHRECcast on both Facebook and on Twitter. Plus, if you've got a question for us, you can contact us at EDHRECcast at gmail.com. Once again, we want to thank the folks at the Command Zone for handling the post-production work on the podcast, and we want to thank our sponsors, TCG Player and CardKingdom.com. Plus, you can visit Altersleeves.com slash EDHRECcast for cool, custom EDHREC sleeves. Listeners, we'll be back at you next week with more data and insights, but until then, remember, EDHRECcast before you wreck your deck.